The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. As I always like to do, I want to give a quick shout-out and a thank you to our core sponsors, Holy Redeemer Health System and and Trust Financial, who are a big supporter of the show and allow us to bring you some really good guests every week here. Uh, I'm so thrilled today to have a guest with me in the studio, which which is always um, a lot more enjoyable than uh, speaking from across the pond. And uh, I have with me today Tanya Comer. Tanya is the principal of an award-winning interior design firm here in Philadelphia. Uh, the, the name of the firm is Tanya Comer Interiors. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Susan. Thank um, you. You and I have met prior to today, and um, you know we've been looking forward to, to today a great deal. I have um, because. I think you're a perfect example of a, a successful woman who's an entrepreneur and has had to overcome some adversity to get there, and that always is a good story. So I'd love to start with uh, your growing up years in Pittsburgh um, at a time when uh, you were living with your mother, a, a single mother, um, in the projects in Pittsburgh, and talk about what those years were like for you. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I just want to thank you so much for having me here as a guest, Susan. It is an honor. It is a privilege. And I am just delighted to be able to be a part of the legacy that you're creating every week by profiling women to watch. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for recognizing my story as something that can inspire your listeners. I, I have no doubt. Thank you. Well, you know, my my story begins, actually, um, the day that my mother walked me out of the Um, hospital room when I was a baby as an infant, you know, days after being born. Um, And we, she had no home to take me to. So she left McGee Women's Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, half a mile down the road or so was a park. And she sat there on a park bench um, and just cried, not having a place to take her daughter. And, um, she held me close to her chest in one moment. She told me the story about how she just cried and she prayed. And out of nowhere comes this woman who um, asked my mom what's wrong. And my mother said, I have no place to take my daughter. I have no home. And this woman helped my mother find the welfare agency, uh, fill out the job application, Uh, or I'm sorry, fill out the apartment application and help my mother secure a home for us and um, the necessary means to be able to support us. And that woman is a miracle. Um, And that sort of begins the journey of my life. Um, At that point, I grew up. My mother was able to secure housing housing and a public housing um, project in the city of Pittsburgh, and we 
um, that's where I grew up until I was age 18. So you began your life, and your mom was 19, is that right? My mother was 19, 19 when I was born. 19 years old, that's, and that's so young, and that's so young. But what um, an amazing an ev- event for this woman to appear at just the right time out of nowhere. I was curious to know if you had any um, opportunity to reach back out to her or find her later in life. I asked my mom recently, like, Mom, if you saw that woman, would you recognize her? Did you ever... Find, get her attempt name. to find her, get her name, and no, it was one of those those things that you know. Looking back, it's like, oh, I wish I had stayed in touch yeah. with that woman so that she could see the real impact that she had. But we know that the universe has taken very good care of that woman That's because right. of what she did for my mom and yeah. for me. Right. So that was the beginning. That and, was the and, beginning. And you and your mom went on, you know, uh, she went on to raise you and, and obviously did a, a tremendous job because you are someone who um, lives and works with very high integrity. I know that to be true. Um, another really wonderful story of your life was an opportunity that your mother and you had to go to a woman's home on Christmas Eve or a family's home, I should say. Um, talk about that event and, and how that really was a pivotal moment for you. Extremely pivotal, uh, pivotal moment for me. I was about 11 at this time, and the church that my mom attended, my mom and I attended, um, there were several families that just took great interest in caring for us. And this one family invited us for Christmas Eve dinner uh, to share the celebration with them. Their home was in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. To my 11-year-old brain, this probably 30- or 40-minute car ride seemed like I had driven across country. <laughs> it always does. That's when right. you're young. You feel like you're going on a trip across the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what it felt like. Yeah. And, you know, in the winters, in, you know, this particular climate, it gets dark early. So we probably started our travels at 4.30 in the afternoon. Oh, but it yeah. felt like by the time we arrived, it was dark. Right. So, you know, by 5, 5.30, it's getting pretty dark. So it really, you know, because it was light and then dark by the time we arrived, (laughs) it certainly felt like I had traveled far. Right. So we were, um, so we we got in the car and we drove this 40-minute or so drive out into the suburbs of the city. And what was remarkable for me, in addition to the length of the car ride, was the length of the driveway to the house. The driveway itself, to my 11-year-old brain, seemed like it was four city blocks long. Or another street. (laughs) Another street. Right, right. You know, and the house sat, Pittsburgh is very hilly, and the house sat up on a hill, and we drove up this seemingly endless driveway to this colonial home, um, Center Hall Colonial Home. It was, to my 11-year-old brain, it looked like a mansion. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm just blown away by this experience, the drive, the driveway, the house. Where the heck am I going, right? right? I've never seen anything like this before. I lived in a concrete jungle. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. So, so um, we arrived and we're greeted at the door and we walk through the house and the women are all dressed up and, you know, they're, they're Christmas finest, you know, 
dresses and the men are in their khakis and their Christmas sweaters and the children are <laughs> dressed the storybook. It is the storybook. Yeah. Story right. <laughs> Precisely. I had never seen anything like this in my family, so I am just, you know, oh my goodness, I am on overload. Right. Well, um, so I paid attention. What is this? Where are we? What are we doing? Who are these people? And finally, I said, tap someone on the shoulder. <laughs> Their names are Bill and Betty. What does Bill do for a living? Oh, he's a lawyer. Oh, what does Betty do for a living? She stays at home. She cares for the kids. Oh, so now, ding, ding, ding. I call this a breadcrumb. I, I, I created in my life that... It has just been a journey of following breadcrumbs that have been intentionally put there for me to find my way to where I need to go. This is what I think was the very first breadcrumb of my life, and that is the opportunity to see that there was something beyond the life that I knew in the projects and that there are actually professional careers that people hold and they invite people like me into their homes, and there's a friendly community. And that was the very first experience that I had. So the breadcrumb was, Mr. Mr. Bill is a lawyer. Well, I want to be a lawyer. So here we have, you know, opportunity number one for me, what does it take to be a lawyer? So I'm 11 years old. I'm in what... In, in our school system, it was called middle school. In some school systems, it's called junior high. I was in middle school at the time. By the time I was preparing for high school, I learned that there was a school that had a law and public service magnet program in which I could go study law. What? So I'm going you, to that high school. Did you seek that out on yeah, your own? My mom the, and I together. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you said to your mom, now, I, you know, I'm going to pursue law, and she did a little investigating yes. and found that out. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is they also had a JROTC program, and my mother was convinced I had to follow that path oh. because I was going to be a lot more someone in my particular env- environment. It wasn't known that you would leave that environment and go to college. Like, how does that transition happen? There's just a limited view for most people. How do you go from living in the projects to going to college to be a lawyer? So within a particular framework, it's thought, well, it's easy to go from being in the projects to going to the military to have the military support you in college. So in my mother's way of thinking, I, I would go to to the military, and from the military, I'd make my way to college. Right. We had the same end goal in mind, but a different route by which we thought we could get there. Mm -hmm. I just knew I was going to college. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I didn't think I was going to the military. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, often the military is an avenue to uh, cover the cost of education. Absolutely. Right? Right. And that's why in, in many communities where there are limited resources, it's seen as the most likely option. For earning a college degree. Right. And that was in my mom's mindset. So tell me, so then you went off to high school. Yeah. And and, um, what were your aspirations then? And and what was happening to you as a young girl in high school, Mm -hmm. having had this experience and now these goals? Oh, it was incredible. So I had what was really great. Two two major things happened. Number one, Mrs. Kerrigan, who was my homeroom teacher, 
saw my very first report card and said, you need to be tested for advanced placement studies. And she worked with my mom to get me tested to be considered for going into our our, um, advanced level class structure within the high school system. And I was placed and successfully I went into those programs. Um, So that was the very first thing. I had someone notice my talent and my intellect and support me to being able to get the education that would best suit me for what was next for me. Again, breadcrumb number two. Mm -hmm. So, and um, the second thing that happened was my mother found a program in the city called, er, excuse me, Urban Youth Action. And Urban Youth Action was a grant-funded program designed to help inner-city kids pursue careers or, or get the training necessary to pursue the careers of interest to them. Now, I'm interested in law, so I participate in this program. They found me a job at a local law firm. So... Breadcrumb number three. Yes, yes. <laughs> everything's falling into it's place. It's falling into place. It's falling into place. Well, I own an interior design business. So I'm not a lawyer, but there's a, there's a path that got me there, right? Yes. So this is sort of the way my life evolved. Breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb until eventually I find myself sitting here with you today, Susan, <laughs> which was a breadcrumb in my life. That's right. That's right. Our lunch in Chester Dale. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know, one of the things when I think about you back then growing up and, and having a tough beginning, which it was, tell me about um, when you developed the confidence and the self-esteem. So one of the things that we talk about often on the show is that lack of confidence that young girls have. It comes from many different places. Um, Certainly cultural messaging um, is not always so great. And and the spiritual strength that you have. You have the the combination of of confidence to pursue what it is you're looking to pursue and go after your goals and also that spiritual strength. When did you realize you had that? Was it kind of a moment? Mm, I can't think of a particular moment. Not that it doesn't exist, but what I can, what I can think about, Susan, is one thing that is innate for me is I'm not a person who's driven necessarily to fit in. So, um, um, because that's the case, I didn't particularly feel the pressures, the peer pressure, for example, or the um, the need to do what everyone else was doing. Mm-hmm. I was definitely not like most of the kids in my community. Um, as a young girl, I was a tomboy, so I played in the trees and you know w- with the boys and got messy and dirty, and I didn't care mm-hmm. um, about um, playing with Barbie dolls or <laughs> you yeah. know those other types of things. And um, and then as I got older, I was more interested in learning and education and um, creating a life for myself. I have a this innate, innate ability to vision, you know, and I'm motivated by the what I see in the future. Mm-hmm. So, I think they call that initiative. <laughs> <laughs> right? Among other things. Right. I mean, really, you, you see something and then you take initiative yeah. to make it happen for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, I would say, is innate, and that certainly has helped me to um, develop a particular sense of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, um, the other thing that I know is that those, those breadcrumbs 
that I've referenced Mm -hmm. as a young girl, having those also helped me to have a particular level of self-confidence, not because I could, I knew that when I met Mr. Bill that I, and, and visited his home, that there was an opportunity for me. It wasn't that particularly, but what it was, was I could see something outside of myself that allowed me to say, at the very least, I should learn or explore or experience whatever that breadcrumb might have been providing me at the time. Was that actually your first um, visit outside of where you lived? Oh, oh yes. Wow. Okay, so that's going that's going from one extreme to another. Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. At age 11. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I had for you, um, you mentioned working daily to overcome the voice that's in your head um, that you call the little girl from the projects. Yeah. Um, and that's something so so key to um, just kind of coping and getting through days, you know, our, our, our every day, changing that tape that plays in our right. head. Um, how do you do that? It is a challenge every day. I kid you not. Um, <clears throat> you know, I have to make a – excuse me for clearing my throat. I have to make a conscious effort most days to remind myself that I'm capable of anything. Because the voice that plays in my head almost immediately is that life is hard, I have to defy the odds, and there's always something for me to overcome. You know, and that's always in my mindset. Mm -hmm. So I'm not waking up in the morning like, oh, the world is my oyster. (laughs) You know, I'm waking up in the morning having to have having the experience that I have something to overcome. Mm. And um it, it, it can be a defeating place if I allowed it to, to take, you know, hold of me. And, um, and so it really is just a reminder that I have the ability and the strength and the confidence, no matter what that thing is that I have to overcome, to overcome it and being reminded of how far I've come in my journey. It's, it's amazing to me. I sit down with accomplished women like yourself all the time, every week. And isn't it interesting that even though you have accomplished great things, we still go back to that to that voice. Yes. Um, you know, if, if somebody can come up with a way to make that stop, you know, permanently, I think it would be <laughs> extraordinary. But it's very, very common to right. continually um, doubt ourselves, no matter what we've right. done. Um, you, so, and in light of that, you received um, an MBA from Michigan State University and a BA from Duquesne. Correct. Um, you did very well in school. That, you know, education is so incredibly important. And, of course, it's such a wonderful time now that there are organizations and people trying to allow for these educational opportunities for young girls in, in areas that don't even have them. Was education something that was the importance of it, I should say, um, kind of innate in you, or was that something that you know other people around you um, influenced? Yeah, I think I was a I think I was a very curious kid, and so I was just born with the, an interest in learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that my my mother actually did um, really stress 
she didn't know exactly what it would take for me to not have the same experience of growing up and being an, a generation living in poverty, another generation living in poverty. And she didn't want to see that cycle continue with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she absolutely stressed the importance of education, but she didn't have to work really hard because it was just something I wanted to learn. I wanted yeah. to be a great student. I wanted to um, have, you know, the opportunity to experience as many things as I possibly could as a kid, just being curious and yeah. inquisitive. Yeah. And Lucky for mom. She didn't have to battle you with <laughs> that, didn't, right? No. She didn't have to stay on you and say, study and do your no, work. No, she and, did not. And go to school. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so when you graduated, you you know, you know, did not go directly into interior design. No. You worked for um, a couple of years in marketing and communications and advertising. Tell me what you learned in those years from a professional standpoint that has helped you with your business. Mm-hmm. Well, actually... Um, I, my very first job was working for the law firm when I was 14. Okay. And then I act, and then I um, I also started working in radio. So this is familiar to me to be here in the studio. I yeah. love it. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in radio for four years. Oh, you did. Um, I worked for the law firm for three years. Okay. And um, that sort of started me into having the experience of what it's like to have the day-to-day routine of actually going to work and doing particular tasks for a particular purpose. Um, now, when I completed um, my undergraduate degree, I was working for a marketing company and still working in radio at the time, and um, had this, um, again, breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb that landed me into all these diverse <laughs> roles, right? right? right. <laughs> One thing abbrevi- is a lesson for the next. Exactly. We're yes. abbreviating this tremendously in this dialogue. Right. Um, but um, I was working for a marketing company at the time and d- conducting market research for radio stations, television oh, stations. Okay. So it was all tied together. It was not completely disjointed. Um, and then while I was doing that job, what I became—I thought I wanted to study journalism. Mm-hmm. I actually thought I wanted to work in television. And um, I learned that... It was just not something that I really wanted for myself. I really didn't like being in front of the camera. I like being behind the camera. Mm -hmm. And I pursued then um, the marketing side of the industry. Mm -hmm. And through that pursuit, um, I had the most incredible experiences. I developed major marketing and advertising campaigns for, for global companies, I um, experienced, um, you know, creating um, print and advertising marketing. So I always had these these combinations of strategic and creative skill sets that I was bringing together in when I was working in advertising, marketing, and communications. And it was just this beautiful, you know, meshing of. Um, these two sides of my brain that I think I can function well in both of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was it was wonderful, and it sort of led me through. I worked in in from um, between radio and by the time I found myself to interior design, I worked in the field for twelve years. Okay, twelve years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about when you discovered your passion for interior design. Oh, my gosh. This is a great story. So while I was pursuing my MBA, I um, 
I worked, I sent my resume to this one particular company. There was one company that I wanted to work for, and I was determined I was going to work for this company. It's a Midwest-based company. I will not mention the name of the company. I will not do that. But <laughs> they still exist, and they're a global company. And I um, sent my resume probably 10, 12 times, and they never even dignified that resume with a response. Like, Aww. thanks, but no thanks. Right. You know, yeah. just, well, is this a company that probably, you know, that gets hundreds and hundreds of resumes a day, would you say? Possibly. Okay. But, you know, yeah. I don't know. I thought I could stand out in the crowd. That's right. something I pride myself on. <laughs> <laughs> so my resume probably ended up in the circular file 10, 12 times. But, yeah. but you know, it's a blessing in disguise. Because had I pers- had I actually secured a job there, I probably wouldn't have landed where I am today, owning an interior design business. Because that breadcrumb that got me to here, I probably would have never got. You know, I never would have seen that breadcrumb. So ultimately, ultimately, I um, I secured a job with an office furniture company, the world's largest office furniture company, Steelcase in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I had the most unique job. It was a job that was new it was newly created. It was challenging. It was unlike any of my other positions in which I was combining, as I mentioned before, combining both of my my left and right brain in this perfect little career for myself. Right. Now it was primarily all um, strategy. And I was responsible for bringing together the, the uh, at the time, Steelcase had purchased five other, other companies, and they were trying to bring all of these companies in under one umbrella, and they had to integrate all of the systems of these five companies into the umbrella for Steelcase, Inc. My job was to understand every single process, structure, administration, administrative procedure, manufacturing procedure, sales procedure, marketing procedure for all five companies and bring together a team of people to formalize a plan to integrate all of these companies under the Steelcase umbrella. Wow. Whoa. Big job. Whoa. Yes. And And what year was this? This was in 98. 98. Okay. And... I had a direct reporting relationship to the vice president of sales, marketing, and communications. So now what you got, for, for, for the listeners who have no comprehension of corporate America, that's a senior level reporting structure. So if I'm reporting directly to the vice president of communications in a global company, I'm not too far away from being at the top, regardless how the structure works. So... In consulting. So had I stayed in that career, had I stayed there and successfully completed that job, I would have had an opportunity probably by now to have been a CEO at a major at a major company because I would have gained this incredible breadth of skills and knowledge and success having done something that monumental. Right. But no. I completed <laughs> Completed milestone number one and successfully completed milestone number one in my position. And um, while I was doing my job and learning all these processes, I discovered the design process of all of these five companies. And I think it became a study for me. 
I studied everything that they were doing in the world of design. And it, it was made easy at Steelcase. Steelcase had this de- design department, 2,000 square feet or so of walls that are all tackable. That means they have fabric on the walls and you pin things to the walls that makes it easy to, you know, see a piece of paper attached to a wall or a piece of fabric attached to a wall. So 2,000 square feet, all these tackable walls that are telling stories about the history of design of almost anything, almost anything, any consumer product, you know, the automobile, textiles, as, as far down as a toaster, I could see the evolution of design over a period of time that was profiled on these boards. So I studied. Fascinating me. Fascinating to me because I walked away from studying those walls um, with the knowledge that every single thing that we interact with as human beings has been designed. Mm. Everything. You know, I've heard that line before when we uh, my daughter graduated from Savannah College of Art and Design and it, I remember having this moment of thinking we don't pay attention to that, that everything we're surrounded with um, there was an artist really exactly. behind it. it it's something important to remember Absolutely. yeah we have to take a quick break sure. for our sponsors and when we come back I would love to talk to you about your seven principles for accomplishment Absolutely. something really important we'll be right back There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography, an automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215 215- 233-3177. That's msjacad dot o-r-g or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. If you're listening, I'd like to quickly give out our call-in number as well. If you'd like to call in and speak directly to Tanya, um, we would love to hear from you. That number is 888-329-3306. That's 888 888- Three two nine thirty three zero six. So again, if you're listening or just tuned in, uh, I'm joined today in the studio with Tanya Comer, who is the principal of an award-winning interior design firm, Tanya Comer Interiors, here in Philadelphia. And uh, just before the break, uh, you were telling us a story about um, working for a design company, and this is kind of when you realize that your your passion really lied in design. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and finish that story. Oh, absolutely. So. What, you know, the very last thing we were talking about was how 
um, I walked away from experience of working in this in this particular position with Steelcase uh, Office Furniture Company, and um, my study of design uh, provided an opportunity to recognize or learn that every single thing that we interact with right. has a design component. Yes, and that learning became a light bulb moment for me. Again, there's now another breadcrumb because I um, I learned that there's something um, about design that appealed to me. Now, it wasn't a reach because I had been designing in the in marketing and advertising communications prior to getting my my MBA, but now there was something that made it a lot more tangible for me that I wanted to pursue it in the world of interior design. So I decided I'd leave my corporate job, and um, I interviewed for a position in the sales force so that I could learn interior design at the commercial level. So rather than being on the the operations end of the business, mm-hmm. I wanted to go into the sales force. And see what customers see want, what, right? Precisely. Yes. And even more so, breadcrumb, test my ability to to be an interior designer. Now... Again, another one of those. So I, my first job at Steelcase was unlike anything else that I had ever done before. It was a unique position. Here I am now interviewing for another unique position within the company's sales force. Right. And I secured this position, but it was not a, a coveted position in the company. It was um, you were, I was responsible for sales in five states with um, – a very specific demographic and a limited sales, a, a limited distribution network to support me in mm-hmm. what I was doing. So, you that's know, hard. if you want to be successful in sales, that's not the position you right. take. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but mind you, I'm not interested in sales. I'm interested no. in validating myself. It's just, just a step. It's a step for me. It's a step. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, I'll take that job. Right. Sure. No problem. <laughs> and I did. And it provided me with an opportunity to service some of my clients through interior design. Um, and I did that successfully. One of my clients said to me, um, Tanya, will you design my kitchen? Light bulb moment. Aha. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes, I did it. I've been validated as an interior designer. I've done what I had to do here. Yeah. And was that your first job? That you know, was your first interior design job? My first that? interior design mm-hmm. job. Yeah. And, um, I got laid off from that position. <laughs> and fortunately. Been, fortunately. Fortunately. It was a breadcrumb to get laid off. Yeah, I got laid off and I purchased a franchise and that's how I started my interior design business. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's such a great lesson in kind of paying attention to the signs, right? Right. Around you. Absolutely. Um, and it doesn't always look as, you know, sometimes these lessons are not, um, uh, you know, a positive. It, it's not a... Um, Promotion, or do you know what I mean? It's yeah. just you paying attention to what is going on around you in your in your profession, right? And is it feeling right to you, right? You know, um, I, I love that story. Um, one of the things that you have, I'll say, developed or come up with is the seven principles for accomplishment, mm-hmm. and this is something that you've kind of compiled, I guess, from your work experience and your life experience. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what those are and how they 
assist you in sure. your day-to-day. <clears throat> now, what what I first want to make sure is clear, like really this, this is the most important part of the seven principles, is the seven principles came out of a soul-searching exercise in which I am addressing the areas of my c- professional career, my personal satisfaction in my career, and all of the strengths and weaknesses that I'm having to face as being an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. owning an interior design business, and what is it that I have to do now to get myself to the next level of success in my business? And so the seven principles evolved after a very thorough soul-searching exercise. Um, so the first of the seven principles is um, partnerships. I recognize that one of the things I'm not as great at is um, a, is rallying a team to support me. Mm. I'm a lone ranger. Mm. And so as a lone ranger, I was missing the opportunity to bring people along with me who could strategically help me grow my business. For example, I specialize in interior design, but I don't do engineering work. Mm. So I need a team of really strong engineers to support me when I'm doing larger projects. Mm -hmm. Engineers will design systems for um, electrical, for example, or my HVAC systems, for example, or um, plumbing systems, for example. So I need those engineers, the structural engineer, the civil engineer, when I'm doing really large work. I also need an architect. I also need a a contractor. So how do I bring along these strategic partners who can help me as I'm pursuing particular types of work. Um, so I looked for the importance of having strong partnerships as I began to, as I'm now evolving and developing my business <clears throat> um, to grow to the next level. Um, the second principle is be unstoppable. Now, I didn't coin the word unstoppability, but there's something about it that is inspiring because we always talk about being fearless. And I think when we, as, as in, generally speaking, I didn't respond to the word fearless in a positive way. So someone would say, be fearless, it didn't work for me, but be unstoppable does. See, I think we need fear. I think fear saves our lives. I think fear is an instinct that's necessary in order to survive. But to be unstoppable means you're not stopped by that fear. Right. You're pushing through the fear. Pushing through it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to find a way to be able to address the areas where I was feeling fearful. And I addressed those by creating the expression for myself, be unstoppable. Okay. Which is a great reminder because mm-hmm. there will always be fear. There's always going to be There's always going to be fear. Mm-hmm. Um, principle number three is follow-up. Now, this is very tactical. This is, you know, you, grassroots, utilitarian follow-up. One of the things that I recognize for myself is that I didn't always follow up. We were talking about this, Susan. Right before the show. Right before the show. Yeah. Um, in what Susan and I were talking about for the listeners is that um, there's a particular person I've been trying to reach, and this person hasn't been responsive. It's someone that Susan was attempting to put me in touch with. And um, I can probably relate. In my mind, I'm thinking she's probably very busy, and she has a 1,000 email a day, and she's probably, you know, she's, she'll follow up at some point, but, 
you know, I have to keep calling or emailing this particular person. And I was like that. And I am like that. And so for me, it takes actually um, creating a reminder to myself that just follow up immediately. You know, try to get something done as quickly as possible. Susan was saying, for the listener, Susan was saying that that she just follows up right away because it makes her life more manageable. But for those of us who are not like that, we need something else so that we can stay on top of our game all the time. And for me, it's just a reminder. A follow-up is nothing more than an opportunity. It really is. And it can also be just just so they know that you haven't forgotten them. It can be, I will be back to you and, you know, give yourself a month from then. You know, Absolutely. And, and to give, give me time to think it over, whatever that might be. But, you know, just not to leave people hanging. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, we all have our, our particular weaknesses, and that is one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm addressing it in my seven principles, and it is a seven. It is a principle for accomplishment because the more you can follow up, it actually presents you with opportunities. It has you move things forward that may that that you may not. Right. Um, for me, I'm sure I've missed opportunities because I did not follow up oh. in a in a reasonable time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that I have to work through. Principle number four is listen. Now, I've been blessed because I have a really good set of listening skills. But when I created these principles, I recognized that even though it is a strength for me, it's something that I have learned um, I want to reinforce for others the importance of it. So for me, I've practiced techniques in order to be a much better listener. I have, um, I continue to work on particular listening patterns, and I can tell when I'm not listening, and I can tell also when others aren't listening to me. Mm-hmm. And um, and and this is a, a, a really critical, in my opinion. Um, principle for accomplishment because number one you get rewarded as list, as a, being a good listener and you'll be amazed at how responsive people are with you when they understand that you're listening to them number two in my career particularly because I am responding to a set of needs that are provided to me verbally for the most part by mm-hmm. my clients yes. I have to be able to hear those needs right and then I'm also responding to a set of needs that aren't verbal so I have to have the ability to listen for what's not spoken and so um, it's a very important, um, I think, skill to master or to work on mastery of. Even though I think I have a good skill, I'll never be a master at listening. I still have to work at it, and I think we all do. Yes, and and, and one of the, 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 the issues is that there's so much distraction. Absolutely. Right? Very rarely are we sitting in a quiet space like you and I are here today, this afternoon, and it, it's easier to listen. There's a lot of distraction, and, and you have to not only listen but hear absolutely. what they're saying. So, yeah, absolutely. So what's number five? And there's more distraction now than ever before. Absolutely. With, yeah. The you know, dinging going on the dinging. all day long. The ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and, and now with, I think, you know, with the, the cell phones and the social media outreach and the email and Internet, there is an expectation that you are to respond That's immediately. Right. The pressure is there. The pressure yes. is there. So it, is. it does make it harder to, to, to just be in tune or just focus on the thing that's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. So I have a policy when I'm with my clients, I don't take my phone in. That's great. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. So that it's not even my client sees that I am just they present have your with full them. attention. Yeah. That's great. Principle number five. Um, 
this is a doozy, so hang in there with me on this one. <laughs> Expand my peripheral view. Now, what that means is, you know, for, for most of us, we walk through life with the ability to only see through the lens of the experiences that have been there from our past. So <clears throat> the things that we see have a reference point to something we recognize from our past. So in order to be able to see something new requires a particular level of curiosity about what there is new to see or else you won't see it. For example, you buy a new car and the car you buy a, I don't know, a silver, name a car, Susan, any car that oh, comes Oh, my to dream mind. car would be a navy blue, um, uh, what do you call it? Oh, my gosh. Um, I, I, the, the name of this car is escaping me. This is my dream car. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll just is go it a with, sports car? Is it a sedan? It's a luxury car. The um, Oh, my goodness. Let's just go with a Lexus okay. navy blue white interior convertible, okay. which they're not making anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's assume you get that car, and they're still it's still being manufactured. And at the at today right now today you don't see very many of them on the road because you don't own one. But the moment that you buy your dream car, Susan. And you actually start driving it. Now, all of a sudden, you see 10 of them or 20 of them or 50 of them when you're out every single day. Right. Yes. And yes. that's because you've now cr- you, you have an association with something that now allows you to see something that you wouldn't have seen before. Right. Yes. Yes. You know, that's have a great you example. had that experience? Yes. yes. Yeah. And so in life, we're that way. Mm-hmm. And and what is it that makes it possible for you to now have an expanded view of something? It's just familiarity with it. Right. So for myself, I recognize that, you know, because I have this ability to be curious, it helps me now to expand my peripheral view. I get to see more things because I'm curious about things. That's so right. I, so that's, you know, yeah. references. Doesn't, doesn't that make life more exciting and interesting and fun? It does. Yeah, to not yeah. limit yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so I have, you know, we, we talked about my curiosity as a kid. You can see how that is now, again, a sh- something that still plays in my life as being very pivotal even to my success as a, you know, as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, because I'm curious, I now have this opportunity to see more things. And learn. And learn. And learn. Yeah. yeah. Principle number six. Okay, this is this is good if you're in a position of hearing yeses and noes for your career. And this principle number six is no means no for now. No doesn't mean no forever. Mm, I like that. No just means no for now. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm in a business in which I can hear no a lot or I can hear no never. <laughs> depends on the client, depends on the situation. Um but it only means no for now. And the critical thing that I'm learning is just how to ask the questions that get me to a yes. So hypothetically, if I present something to a client and I'm presenting a sofa um, that's really clean lined, a tailored look, and in a, um, a, a denim a denim colored linen and the client says no I don't like that 
So all I get to do is continue to ask the questions until she says yes. So what is it that do do you like the color? No. Do you like the the shape? No. Do you like that it has three cushions? Yes. The moment I get to a yes, I now have some place to go with solving her problem or answering, addressing her particular objections. Mm-hmm. If I allowed myself to never ask the questions that get me to the yes, I will push aside that sofa as being the wrong solution for that client. And have to start over. And have to start over. Now, that's a small example, but we deal with those in our lives all the time because we hear a no and we just, you know, do not move forward. An even bigger example of that is in, in when we're drafting up agreements and contracts. And the client says, no, I don't want to sign the agreement or the contract. Well, um, so is it that you're saying you're not interested in, the, in, in signing this particular agreement? No, I'm not interested in signing this particular agreement. Will you be interested in signing an agreement with me? Yes. The moment you hear the yes, now you can begin to address what's missing in that particular mm-hmm. agreement. Yeah. So they're, they're not advice. saying they don't want to work with you. They're just saying they're not interested in that particular agreement. Right. So... There's, there are techniques and tools that help you better address objections as it relates to getting yeses and nos. And it's great advice. Yeah. Great advice. Um, and then the last one. The very last one, seven taboo words. So number seven, principle number seven, seven taboo words. This is very significant. I have always done it this way. I have always done it this way. Um, I say this is probably one of the most influential things that I personally can take on for myself because always doing things the same way can be the death of creativity. It can be the doom of satisfying a client. It can be the cause the biggest breakdowns in any relationships. Um, it, it can be the abyss of producing <laughs> results. <laughs> so you're, so the, don't ever say that. Don't, don't ever, ever say Don't it. ever say that. Okay. Okay. You'll always get what you always got if you always do what you've always done. Right. right? Great. You know, this is such a great, um, each one of those individually is is so powerful for different reasons. And, and I will be sure to, to be listing that, you know, um, on our website and, and on social media. I think they're great great tips. Um, I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to talk about um, your latest project and how it started in 2010 and is now the, you know, the culmination of all of your creativity and, and, you know, your ideas and is launching now. It's exciting. Um, So I'm trying, I'm looking at the clock and I want to make sure that we talk about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is, this is a particular challenge that I had to overcome. And Susan, right before the interview, you asked me, you know, is there, is there something that I really want to make sure that the listeners could, could know about? And I just referenced the the experience of creating my own tile line as something that I want everyone to hear about. And the reason it's important is because I had to overcome a lot in order to make this a possibility. So I'm going to take you back to circa 2003. I had just started my interior design business in 2002. I purchased a franchise initially. And 
I was just inspired. I was on fire. Design was my life, and I was going to design everything, and the world was going to be touched by Tanya Comer and her designs. And <laughs> I was just, you know, I'm doing the I've business. Yeah. I'm, I'm scared to death, but yeah. holy cow, somehow the world will know Tanya Comer. <laughs> and so there was this drapery hardware company um, design contest. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got to design drapery And where hardware. are you at this time? Are you in Pittsburgh? I was in, in Maryland in at Maryland. this point. Okay. Yeah, so I have got to design drapery hardware. So I designed this hardware for this major international drapery hardware company. Drapery hardware are things that we use to hang curtains or draperies at our windows. They're rods, they're rings, they're brackets. Mm -hmm. And I designed this really sleek, cool line of drapery hardware. I placed second in this international contest. Wow, that's fantastic. Yes. Now, the first place winner had um, their drapery hardware line manufactured... Um, and they were accredited for their work. The second place winner, me, got a $250 check and a certificate that said, congratulations, you won second place. <laughs> now, I'm proud of the certificate. It yes. hangs in my office. Right. You know, I Not love exactly it. the exposure you were yes, looking for. it wasn't. Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, $250 in this thing, and it was it was pretty significant accomplishment only one year into owning my business. Yes. Um, and so now three years later, three years later, I'm flipping through a shelter magazine and I see the drapery hardware that I designed in the magazine. Wow. My, I was not accredited for the work. Wow. I was not given a licensing or a royalty free for the work, nothing. So at that moment, three years after this, so it's 2006, I decided, oh, my God, I cannot survive the animal, the big animal called product manufacturing. I am never going to do that again. And I shut it down. It was all subconscious, Susan, totally subconscious. So now fast forward. I'm going to tell this part really quickly because I know we're winding up here. Fast forward to 2013. I'm sitting with the think tank group that I created, and I'm trying to figure out how I can create residual income in my business because I can't just survive on interior design projects alone. Right. And I kept talk, coming up with product design. I'm like, that's not going to work. So um, ultimately, I recognized that I had shut down my interest my drive and my passion to have Tanya Comer touch the world because I felt that I was defeated by this big animal called product manufacturing. And there's the thing I had to now overcome. The voice in my head that said, you cannot do this, you're not going to survive it, and it's not for you, you know? And ultimately, I, um, 2014, I decided I would pursue product design. The moment I did that, someone came to me and said, Tanya, we'd like for you to design tile for us. And breadcrumb, here it is, 2016, and my, I launched my tile line. And it's My beautiful. very first tile it line. It is beautiful. <laughs> Thank tell, you. Tell the listeners about it. Just, I mean, tell them where they can see it. Sure. It's you know, tilebar.com, T-I-L-E-B-A-R.com, and it's the Tanya Comer Boulevard Collection. Boulevard Collection. So the tilebar.com, is that a, a, a platform where one can go to purchase yes. tiles from all different 
designers and distributors. Am I getting that right? Exactly right. And I was I licensed with them to distribute my tile products. Okay. And um, we we just we have a couple minutes left. Just um, last bit of advice for the listeners. I want to you know I'm always hoping that there's a woman listening who is really kind of on the cusp of either asking for that raise or launching her own business. What is your last bit of advice for her? That she's she's stuck somewhere. Yeah. Um, I can, I will speak specifically to those who are interested in entrepreneurship. Um, there are always barriers to entry. There are many barriers to entry, whether you're a man or a woman. But as a woman, we have particular barriers, and most of them are mental. Mm-hmm. And so my, my suggestion or recommendation to all of you interested in, in, in entrepreneurship, do not allow your mental barriers to be the things that stop you from entering and following your dream. Um, we are only um, as good as what we allow f- ourselves to be. Yeah. And if we stop at that no, mm-hmm. or if we stop at the no that we're allowing ourselves to listen to, then we just won't have the opportunity. And you know a phrase I love? If you don't ask, the answer is always, always no. no. That's a great one, just because it's so true. So what do you have to lose? Absolutely. Listen, great show. I thank you so much for coming in here this afternoon. I know how busy you are, and I'm I'm thrilled to see you. Oh, my gosh. Susan, thank you. This has been a pleasure. It's been an honor, a real delight. I just am enjoying being here in the studio with you. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch. Have a great week. 